There aren't any things in Chinese medicine. There are processes and relationships. And if we thingify something, if we objectify it, we've stepped out of the mind and the world of Chinese medical practice and stepped into something else, right? And so within the space of process and relationality, we're looking for a collaboration. I'm Michael Max, and this is Geological. When I was first in college, I had a class in environmental geology, and the professor had a standing writing assignment for us that had us haunting the stacks of the library, seeking to draw connections between geology and other disciplines, both related and not so. As I recall, we were given a list of publications that we could explore. It could be anything from astrophysics to zoology. The assignment was simply to dig into something that caught our interest and write about how it related to the environment and geology. This took me into hours delightfully wild away reading through journals that I'd never otherwise have bothered to pick up and read. It gave me an opportunity to wander and wander through the periodical stacks, follow trains of thought I'd otherwise never have encountered. And one of the things I discovered was how the death of stars over the course of billions of years created the elements necessary for this planet and all that unfolds here. I learned over the course of that semester that curiosity and serendipity were a reliably potent combination when approached with a loose focus and enough space to allow time to dilate in the way that it can when you're lost in an inquiry. And the seeking itself calls forth a kind of synchronicity. It's a kind of navigating by feel that is not possible with an internet search. There is no algorithm for how human hearts minds, and intention can conjure up just what you didn't think you needed. I found this process to be reliably and repeatedly trustworthy in doing research. It was something that could be conjured but not commanded. It was a sort of oracle navigation. One part intention, another perception, along with a modicum of surrender and attention to the inner compass that wordlessly points toward the inner, true north. Seek is not the same as search. What we do in clinic is not reducible to a Google search. Seeking entails a wider sense of perception. It opens up more than ratchets down. It requires your attention, the ability to both sense and think, and the capacity to travel on friendly terms with uncertainty. Seeking is what the great masters of medicine did. They weren't looking for an answer. They were engaged in understanding. They didn't narrow their perception. They widened it. Seeking leaves you open to unexpected flashes of insight and long pauses of consideration. It dilates time, whereas search compresses it. When you're working with a patient, seek is how you find an acupuncture point and how you know that they're effective. It's how you put together a diagnosis that you won't find in books. It's how humans can communicate the gestalt of a problem that allows for an intervention that the searching mind is incapable of formulating. 
Trading seeking for searching will narrow your vision. It will get you facts, but you'll fail to understand the process. You'll teach your attention to narrow, become more susceptible to groupthink, and more vulnerable to your own cognitive biases. What's worse, if what you're looking for is not on the first page of your search, you might mistakenly think it doesn't exist. Seeking, however, goes in the other direction. It's not fast. It's humanly analog. It slows you down in a way that will soothe your ADHD, and it might even take the edge off your anxiety. Seeking takes you in the opposite direction of conformity, and you might just discover that you make friends with writing, perspectives, or thoughts in places where you least expected to find it. How we know and how we know we know our capacity to sit with our patients in that liminal space of not knowing, and the ability to navigate the uncertain process of unfolding a treatment. All these are processes that can be learned, but not so easily taught. In this conversation with Taryn Rosenthal, we investigate the process of investigation, mull over how we bring together thoughts, experience, and attend to the unfolding present moment in our clinical work. These conversations come to you through the generous support of our sponsors and members. All the sponsors here provide helpful products or services that you'll find beneficial in your clinical work. Worried that an EMR is too complex for you? Jane has friendly and knowledgeable support. Mayway Herbs is celebrating the 55th year of their family business. You're invited to make use of their vast library of resources. Are you concerned about the health of Mother Earth? AccuFast Needles is doing something about that. You can too. And later in the show, Ancestral Sturman offers up a sinew treatment, and the folks at Blue Poppy have something special to share as well. Do be sure to visit the sponsors page on the Geological website to take advantage of all the special offers our terrific sponsors have for listeners of the podcast. I don't know about you, but sometimes I take a step back and marvel at my acupuncture needles. I mean, they're the world's simplest medical tool, a sharpened wire and a handle. That's it. And with this simple tool, hundreds of health conditions can be resolved. I love it. What I didn't love was the amount of packaging waste I generated at the end of the day. But that has now changed too. Ever since I switched to AccuFast Earth-Friendly Needles, I reduced my packaging waste by 90%. Not only are they a great needle, but the folks at AccuFast plant a tree for every two boxes of needles I use in the clinic. By switching to AccuFast Needles, you'll be helping patients, planting trees, and joining a community of practitioners changing the world. Like our simple needle, being a part of the solution, it's simple too. Visit AccuFastNeedles.com slash Geological to learn how. Hi folks, I'm Yvonne Lau, president of Mayway Herbs. Our family business turns 55 this year, and we wouldn't have gotten this far without the love and support of our community. We're truly grateful and promise you that we'll continue to work hard to support you and your practice. Please visit Mayway.com to find the perfect Pumsar brand formula or formulate your own in our dispensary. Our site also has lots of articles, videos, and herbal recipes for you to explore. And tune into our podcast, Chinese Medicine Matters, for insightful discussions on all things TCM. Learn about treatment strategies and powerful herbal remedies. 
As we welcome the month of May, our focus is on women's health. Our newsletter articles and podcast episodes this month will highlight different aspects and unique challenges women face. So subscribe or tune in. And if you're a practitioner, get a discount on our women's health formulas this month. Just visit Mayway.com. This season and every season, trust Mayway Herbs for your health and wellness needs. And thank you for supporting Real Chinese Medicine. I love how technology can help to automate my office. And I want to share with you my favorite tool for doing so, Jane. Jane is a clinic management software in EMR with a human touch. Whether you're switching your software or going paperless for the first time, the Jane team knows that the onboarding process can feel a little overwhelming. That's why with Jane, you don't just get software, you get a whole team. Included in every Jane subscription is their award-winning customer support available by phone, email, and chat whenever you need it, even Saturdays. You can also book a free account setup consultation to review your account and ensure you feel confident about going live. If you're interested in making the switch to Jane, head to jane.app/switch to book a one-on-one demo with a member of their support team. And be sure to mention the code Geological at the time of sign up for a one-month grace period on your new Jane account. Listen into this conversation on mutable and flexy perspectives that helps us to attend to our patients with some skill and presence in our clinical work. Sharon Rosenthal, welcome to Geological. Thank you, Michael Max. It is uh, it's a total honor to be here. People keep saying honor. It's like, what's up with this honor thing? It's like strength and honor. What what are we, gladiator here? Mm, I mean, I don't see it as that, but like from my point of view, right, geological has been an inspiration to me and to, I think it's not unfair to say at this point, countless other people in our profession. Mm-hmm. And so like, I have certainly not listened to every episode, but I've listened to most of them and the caliber of conversation and the level of scholarship and dedication and, um, you know, wisdom and skill that I think often is expressed in this space. Like it's a really beautifully high bar. I don't necessarily personally feel like I am <laughs> I'm, like, I feel like I'm standing on the shoulders of giants just to, to be in the space. Right. So that's the kind of honor that I mean, uh. not so much gladiatorially, but just like, you know, there's a lot of really amazing and transformative conversations about life and medicine and practice that have happened in this space. So that's pretty cool. It is cool. I am grateful for that. And it's because I invite people, well, like you, and we've had some conversations in the past, you know, people sometimes say, you know, how do you find people for this? Well, I I run across them. We have conversations or somebody says, hey, you should talk to so-and-so. I mean, you know, I just kind of how do I vet people for this? I, I just get a little feeling. It's like, hmm, I want to know more about what they're thinking. Yeah. And the thing that I think is wonderful about geological that, you know, I feel so fortunate that I get to be sitting in this space where I get to talk to all these people because while there are, and I've said this before, while there are luminaries in our field and, and you could probably spell their names, I think what's more important is there are a lot of people that maybe no one has ever heard of. They're just heads down working in their practice. They're just doing the craft. 
They're the journeymen and women of our practice. And you learn a lot. The medicine will teach you. If you stick with it, it will teach you how to do it. And there's just a lot of folks that do that. And we, and we all go in different directions and we hardly ever get a chance to sit down and really noodle through it. Thanks to the internet in this particular moment in time with the technologies that we have, something like geological can arise. So it, it's something that all of us create. And, uh, you know, it's my, it is actually my pleasure to some degree at this point, my responsibility as well, because mm -hmm. I've been doing it for a while. But more than that, I, I feel like I have a, a little bit of, uh, you know, some work that's mine to do, which is just to sit down with folks and, and do this. So thank you for being here. Because without our community having conversations, there is no geological. It really is voices of our community. I happen to be kind of an enzyme that makes it work, but it's that catalytic reaction that happens. That you know, that's that's where the juice is. So yeah. So here we are, Mister Catalyst. Uh, we've had some conversations about uncertainty and the unknown. And as we were talking just before we started rolling tape. Uh, that we're here to talk today about things that are mutable and fluxy, which I think is a great term. S medicine is such an interesting thing, and especially in our modern day, and with, under the influences of, I'm going to say, conventional medicine, and I'm using air quotes here, evidence-based medicine. There's this idea that things are supposed to be solid and knowable, and we we always know exactly what we're doing. And there, you know, if you understand the situation, then there's a certain treatment that, of course, would come out of that because we know shit. Truth of the matter is, there's a whole lot of stuff we don't know. We are constantly bumping up against the unknown, and so one of the things I'm curious about pretty much everybody that I talk to is how do you navigate that? Or as, as uh, the late Chip Chase would say, mm. pacing the void. Yeah. Pacing the void. So I'd, I'd love to get your, some of your thoughts on that. I, for me, this is like the central question of probably my life, I would say, like not just medicine, right? But this question of like, how, how do we live and navigate in a space where, you know, I, I would even maybe go further and say, not only are things uncertain, but at a certain level, they're indeterminate. Where like, so not only do we not know, but often we can't know in any kind of fixed and solid way. I mean, like if we take the Tao Te Ching at its word, things in the world that we live in are in a constant state of, of change, right? The mm -hmm. one thing that is constant is change. So if that is true, then like any perspective that there's something solid to grab onto is an idea that is an abstraction and not actually um, a super representational abstraction in the sense that it's like, it's an inaccurate abstraction, though I would say also necessary in many ways. Yeah, so it is, it's a map of the terrain. Maps are really useful. Totally. Map is not the territory, map is not the terrain. And so right. the terrain is constantly changing. We have these maps that approximate that terrain. 
one of the things I'm really curious about it, it it's how do I phrase this? Because we, at least myself, and I think most of us humans, we're generally working out of our mental models. We're working out of our maps of the world. Sometimes we get a whiff beyond the map. Yeah. Sometimes we get a, a sense of what I'm going to call unfiltered reality. Mm. And and I think that happens in practice and, and probably should happen in practice because we do need to be fiercely present with our patients. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm totally with you on that. And I feel like, you know, this is where I'm going to take a step into the adjacent, um, from the practice orientation in terms of what happens in clinic and speak a little bit to like practice practice in terms of cultivation practice or contemplative mm -hmm. practice, because at mm -hmm. least for me in my experience and the understanding that, that arises out of that experience, it is having and you know, whatever people can do what they do and resonate with what they resonate, but having some orientation to working with and within one's experience and, and finding uh, a path to presence, right. And being able to inhabit the body and relate to a moment with the least amount of mental modeling and abstraction possible, which is of course iterative, I think is fundamental, at least in my understanding, to being able to practice the medicine in a, um, a way that is not proscriptive, right? But is responsive and mm. collaborative and co-creative and, and communicative on a deep level. Responsive versus prescriptive. Mm -hmm. mm. Now there is a uh, there's a yin yang polarity that uh, sounds pretty juicy. Yeah, you know, one of the things I say to folks, I certainly say it to new patients, right? And I often say it over and over again with folks that I work with for any length of time is that there aren't any things in Chinese medicine. There are processes and relationships. And if we thingify something, if we objectify it, we've stepped out of the mind and the world of Chinese medical practice and stepped into something else, right? And so within the space of process and relationality, we're looking for a collaboration and for an understanding that all of this processual, relational, collaborative engagement is experimental in the sense that if I think that I know what's going to happen, then it's unlikely that I will really be able to experience and perceive what is happening. Mm -hmm. And so we just have to, based on what we can feel and, and perceive and understand, both in terms of a cognitive frame and also just in terms of an embodied understanding of whatever is arising in this moment, we move with that. And then we have to just wait and see what arises next. Right. And not have an expectation, even though on a certain level, we need to have an intention. It's a challenge. It's tricky, right? That we want to, I think, I mean, first of all, we want to help generally for in this profession, people come in with something that they've identified as a problem and often other practitioners 
especially Western biomedical practitioners have identified as a pathology with a diagnosis, right? Which comes with an identification process generally. So when you ask someone like, how are you doing? They will often, if they have been in that system, they'll just give you a list of terms. Or they'll just give you the diagnosis. Well, you know, I've, I've got X, Y, Z. Right. The list of terms is just like this thing and this thing and this thing. And I take this thing and this thing and this thing. And the doctor said this and this and this. And you're like, how are you doing? And then you get the next list, mm -hmm. right? And the next list. So if we're really talking about uh, holding a space for healing to happen, right? Which is not something that I can do. I cannot heal someone. Amen, brother. But we hear it all the time in our profession. I fixed their back pain. I got them pregnant. Um, I got rid of their headaches. Blah, 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 blah. I think that's super problematic. Super problematic, right? It's a, it's a misplaced... Whitehead talks about the fallacy of misplaced concreteness, where basically you think something is solid that's not, and you flip like theory and manifestation. And so this is one of these things where it's like, yeah, if something changed and you are part of that process, certainly that is real. It's not that it, it may not have happened without the support that you offered. But to think that you are the actual agent of change and the intelligence in the system that is what shows up as healing, like, it's just wrong. Sorry, like, that's not how it works, right? Like, I'm, I am not the thing that heals somebody else. I, I would agree with you. And, and, and the reason that I agree with you is because there was a period of time where I didn't, where I thought I was the active agent. And then there would be good days where patients came in and things are better. And I'm like, ha, huh, look at me. I got this shit down. I know what I'm doing. Right. And then they come back the next week and it's just fallen apart. Yeah. All right. And so, okay, that must be my doing as well then. If I'm the one who heals and I'm also the one who doesn't, except I would notice my mind go, oh, there's something else that happened that had nothing to do with me. And it's like, whoa, 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 back up. All right. There's an inconsistency here. Yeah. So either I did it or I didn't, or maybe there's actually something else going on here. And I like the way that you say it, there is, there is healing that happens. We're in that field. We're in that presence. We're in that process, but man, oh man, I do at this point think that while we have a part in, in the relationship and the experiences apart, there is something in our patients and I'm going to put it in the category of mystery, mm -hmm. even though I don't use that word lightly and I hate saying it. Oh, it's a mystery. I hate saying that word, but there is something of like mystery. There is something primordial. There is something in the people that we're working with that happens out of that experience. Yeah. I mean, you know, Ed would, Ed Neal would talk about it as the innate circulatory intelligence of the system, um, you, which I think for me points in a direction that is both mysterious and also practical in the sense that I feel like, you know, I, I, my observation is that living systems know how to be harmonious, whole, and healthy, and that they can get off track and either, these are metaphors, right? Like forget or not be able to access that, whatever that vital source is, right? That intelligence, that innate capacity for uh, the expression of thriving. And so I think really what our job is, is to do the best that we can to find the place 
within the system, which the only way we can do this is to actually like we become part of the system, not that we're ever really separate from it anyhow. And like, okay, so somehow we find the place that it seems like with the least amount of intervention is going to support the system the most to be able to either remember or have access to that fundamental capacity to express thriving, um, which I totally agree, I think is fundamentally mysterious, but I, it's mysterious and in some way the, um, the space is something that I feel like we can kind of talk about what the space is, even if how it all happens on some level gets into like where we run out of words and run out of ways to have any kind of cognitive comprehension of it. We can wrap words around a lot of it. We can wrap cognition around a lot of it. You know, we make a story that makes sense to us because we're, we're hopefully in our pacing of the void trying to make some sense. We're drawing maps at the edge of what we know, hopefully updating them as we go. This is where paradigm shifts can really come in. Yeah. You know, enough stuff doesn't fit where the whole map falls apart. Well, and there's the other tricky thing, which is like every map is going to also influence the territory, right? Yes. And, and even more influence our perception of the territory. But there's definitely like, it goes at least in two directions. Yes. So... I hadn't thought about it that way, but I hear you say it, and that sounds right. The map also influences the territory, or at least our perception of it, our ability to perceive certain things. This is why clinic is so delightfully surprising sometimes. Totally. Because patients will say something, and we're like, oh, now I see what's going on, or oh, I missed that piece. Yeah. Right? It adds something. Yeah. You know, the delightful thing about our medicine is it gives us these sort of lenses and prisms, so to speak, to look through things with. Mm -hmm. And and we can see things that conventional medicine is blind to. Likewise, there's things that Western medicine can see Chinese medicine is blind to it, right? Go looking for hormones in Chinese medicine. Good luck with that. Yeah. Right. But the the traces that hormones leave or the processes that they help to unfold, we can we can see that. Sure. But it's, it's, it's through a whole different, you know, kind of lens. The, um, I, I, there's something that I have happened a fair amount of time in clinic. This is, this is maps and territory here, maps and terrain, where patients will be talking about something and it, they've identified it as a problem. I got this problem. There's this, there's that, you know, and, and I listen, I listen and, I, and I'm thinking to myself, that doesn't sound like a problem. Right. It sounds like a superpower. Yeah. The thing that might actually be right about them, they think is wrong with them. Yeah. It's not always like that, but sometimes, and, and this is, this I think is kind of an example of where our maps influence our terrain. Totally. I mean, I think, and that to me speaks also to this, to two, two really profound challenges. One we touched on a little bit a second ago, which is that people come in and they come in because they have a problem and our job is to fix the problem. That's the agreement, right? It might be tacit, but there's the expectation that like, I'm coming to you to fix me and there's something wrong with me. Hello everyone, Anne Cecil Sturman here. 
a working knowledge of the eight extraordinary channels from the unbroken oral tradition of acupuncture is valuable beyond words. The power of these channels is tremendous if the practitioner has well-integrated diagnostic, theoretical and practical skill. You'll be familiar with Dumai, the governor channel or the sea of yang, the primal reservoir of yang, which ultimately finances all movement and growth. But this channel also governs the ability to self-determine. The psycho-emotional presentation of your patients can be matched to a classical activation of this channel, clearing impedance in the free flow of yang chi to body, mind and spirit. I'd like to share with you the marvelous potency of the Do channel in a full-length live treatment video from the seminar I taught last year in Melbourne, Australia. It's at ancecilsturman.com forward slash sinews2024. Click on the jump to free teaching button or see the link on my Instagram page at ancecilsturman. Thanks, Michael. Back to you. That is the tacit agreement. That's why people are looking for us, and it's why they're going to pull out their checkbook or their credit card. Totally. And then there's a there's a even bigger space, which is that like that there is this thing called pathology, and this is deeply embedded in our medicine, just as it is in Western medicine. It's like there's bad things, and bad things happen, and those are diseases, and this is a problem too, and we don't want those things, which I get because what we call pathology and disease generates suffering at the same time i if we're going to lean into this orientation that fundamentally living systems know how to thrive mm. then it might be useful to think about whether or not a pathologizing orientation or paradigm is really the best filter through which to observe and engage those systems because what that problem or that pathology right it could be a superpower it could also just simply be like i i'm communicating what i have learned up until this point mm. right and so mm. and i'm telling you in every way my story right and so there's there is nothing wrong about what anything anything that anyone has learned. It may generate suffering, mm -hmm. right? And mm -hmm. and most people don't want to suffer. And I certainly got into this business because I want to help people suffer less. But what's interesting and tricky is that when I orient towards like problems and pathologies and fixing things, I mean, you know, sometimes like somebody comes in with an acute trauma. I do a lot of structural body work, you know, Twena and stuff like I'm not saying that that doesn't have merit in a certain context, but it is way more limited than I it, it, let me say it like this. That orientation limits the scope of what is possible within the kind of medicine that we practice in ways that I think don't fundamentally serve those who are seeking our support or us. But it's really, really disconcerting to let go of the idea that there's a problem, that you can fix it, that there are pathologies and diseases, and to just start to engage with things as they are in such a way that 
like not only can we not be attached to outcome, but we can't really even understand outcome. I don't know about that. I think, I think often enough we can't understand outcome. Let, let me give you an example. Someone comes mm-hmm. in there, they're liver blood deficient. Yeah. They've got all the classic kinds of signs of liver blood deficiency and their sleep is awful and maybe their period is, you know, this or that, or their ability to think and, and, uh, you know, Ruth or Shen isn't so good because yeah. the heart isn't being nourished as well. And, 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 you know, we can look at that through our lenses of Chinese medicine and, and, and do what it looks like a system like that would need. And let's say the system responds well, mm-hmm. we can go, yeah, that's what it was. And, and I think we can track it pretty well within that rubric. Mm-hmm. I mean, in some ways, it's like someone twisted their ankle. Okay, I'm just going to help you with your twisted ankle. I mean, sometimes it is, I'm going to say, that's simple. Because some things are do seem pretty simple. But it's the, is this a but or an and? And there's like always something behind things. Sometimes people are coming for help with the stuff that's behind things. Mm-hmm. They don't even know it. Right. But sometimes I don't think they're really asking for help with what's behind things. They just want their need to feel better. Totally. And sometimes, as you say, it can be relatively simple or super simple, mm-hmm. um, depending on where an individual is in a particular life process, right? Like, okay, so this person is relatively healthy and you know their system is relatively adaptable and there was some direct insult to the knee. Like, okay, totally. And that is a often a relatively small subset of the folks who end up coming in for care because I don't know about your practice, though I have a hunch this is likely. Often people show up when they've exhausted a bunch of options right? and they've tried all the things and they show up frequently feeling pretty defeated and somewhat desperate about their situation. Right. It's not across the board, but that is that is not uncommon for people in this profession. Not uncommon. Right. Often enough. And and those people will often announce themselves by saying, You're my last hope. Right. And so I guess I should have been a little clearer, but when we're in this space where like mm. people are showing up and they feel that they have exhausted all their options, mm-hmm. then I think this thing about outcome gets a lot trickier yes. to fundamentally understand. Because if it were that simple, I wouldn't be their last hope and neither would you. It would have because been handled. Some, yeah, somebody else would have addressed it. So mm-hmm. I think it's in a, an important uh, contextual frame to, mm-hmm. to be clear about, right? Yeah. Agreed. So we're talking about, well, was the, the phrase edge case comes to mind, but we see a lot of edge cases. Like you say, right. if it was fairly simple, it would have probably been taken care of. The system itself is robust enough. It would have, it would have compensated in a non-harmful way or some other practitioner would have taken care of it. So yes, we often end up in these, well, gosh, just what is this? And very complex, often highly contradictory presentations. Yeah. You know, and I really like what you said a few minutes ago about, uh, I'm going to paraphrase this, that, they come in and, and like everything that's going on is part of the story of what's going on. You know, there are patients are telling us a story. Maybe they, they believe that they've got this diagnosis or they're, they're, they're believing the diagnosis. Of course they've got a diagnosis, but, 
but they're kind of believing into what all that entails, including what the world is telling them they're supposed to do as treatment for a diagnosis like that. Often enough, the treatment that people receive actually is harm more harmful than helpful. So they end up with us. Yeah. Um, I've got a question here on the tip of my tongue. It's going to take me a moment to to get it off. I'm I'm, I'm thinking about what you were saying about living systems. Because um, living systems have incredible intelligence built into them or they wouldn't be living systems. Millions of years of experience passed down one generation to another. You know, life forms are pretty intelligent in, in how they live in this world. So in these moments where you have these patients with maps that don't quite fit, where do you start? How do you, how do you enter in and begin working with that unknown, what did we say earlier? Mutable and flexi. Mutable and flexi system. Um, so I mentioned a few minutes ago that I do a lot of manual work. Mm -hmm. Um, and so, I mean, if a new patient comes in, like many of us, people have the expectation that they're going to tell you their story. And I have experimented with not having them tell me their story first and laying hands on. And while on one level that has a lot of benefit for me as a clinician, the end of the day, it doesn't really seem like people like it. So it always starts with someone telling me their story, right? So I start listening and observing and doing my best to begin intentionally coming into resonance with that, that being, or from a certain point of view, those beings, the community of beings that are that individual in quotes, mm -hmm. individual. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, they have an opportunity to tell me why they're there and what's going on. And that gives me an opportunity to hear and see and smell and feel right and breathe and then at a certain point we'll shift gears maybe maybe there's some structural assessment in sitting or standing that's going to happen depending on what's going on but often i will just start out and start doing some twena which gives me an opportunity you know, and again, I, I work with a lot of folks that come in for primarily, at least in the beginning, injury, acute or chronic biomechanical stuff that has not gotten resolved in one way or another. So there's the benefit of being able to get a sense for the terrain on a palpatory level. And also, you know, in Twena, there's this like, there's not really a separation between diagnosis and treatment. So you're engaging with the system, you're allowing and facilitating movement and kind of understanding relationship as you go. Yeah, you're getting a whole different story. Totally. So we see where the story that I can hear and see and smell and feel without physical contact, how it comes into uh, resonance, coherence, or otherwise with the story that I can perceive with my, my body through touch. And I wouldn't want to say that my primary way of understanding what's going on is, is palpatory, but 
it's super important to the way that I work. And definitely, um, I, I try to not be particularly cognitively oriented when I'm in the clinic. It's not that I don't think that, um, I mean, I, I'll be real clear. I'm compared to our peers, our colleagues, our brothers and sisters, and other siblings of the medicine. Like I am not a scholar. I would never pretend to be a scholar. Like I do study plenty, but like there are people that are truly scholars of this medicine. And I just want to make it clear as I'm describing this, that like, that's also not my way. My way is more through embodied practice, like through internal martial arts, through, you know, manual medicine and stuff like that. But at the same time, I still try to keep as much of the cognitive framing, the mental modeling and mapping out of the treatment room. Not because I think it's bad, but because as we've been talking about, I think that it often will um, shift and maybe even warp a little bit the experience and the perception of what actually is there. And so I want to see what happens when I relate as clearly as possible to what is directly what's arising in the moment. And, you know, and then it's kind of like we take it from there. We follow, I mean, I'm a, I've been a student of Tom Bizio's for many, many years. And one of the things that I love about Tom's teaching, when you really have an opportunity to study the breadth of what he offers in his Twena classes, is that moving from the exterior to the interior, right? Like you're working with a joint structure, you're going to the organ, you're coming back out, you know, you're potentially doing a, a Zhengu set. Like there's all of these ways that you can follow connections through the system that the system is actually in the same way we're talking about telling stories. It's, it's directing the treatment, right? If we can, if we can get out of the way enough and be sensitive enough and drop our, you know, concepts enough, mm -hmm. drop the map. We don't, we don't have to make decisions because we're, we're being guided through a process that that yeah. deeper intelligence of the living system is actually directing, right? So there's somebody in the room running the show, but it's not either of the people that seem to be the the individuated consciousnesses that are in the treatment space. I have this image of, I'm gonna call it the system or terrain of the air quotes here patient mm. guiding you through the, the landscape. Totally. When you're not in your mental model. This, I think this is one of the reasons I'm so happy we're having this conversation. I've been drawn to the palpatory aspects of our work for a long time. I don't feel like I'm very good at it. I feel like I'm bad at it, but I keep chipping away at it. Mm. I just keep chipping away at it. And as we're having this conversation, I realize that I keep chipping away at it because I recognize that I love my mental models. I love my maps. I love feeling like I'm capable and competent and I have an idea and these ideas work and my maps are good maps. I like that. It, it helps me feel secure. It helps me feel happy. It helps me feel accomplished. All, all kinds of things. I mean, there's a, there's a place for maps, right? Totally. Who doesn't love their Google maps? That said, the maps can warp our perception. The maps can blind us, in fact, to what's there. The maps can change how we see things. I mean, they really can blind us as well as, as, as guide us to some degree. And when I put my hands on people, when I, when I allow myself to be guided 
by that terrain, something can happen. Mm-hmm. And that conscious map-making mind, it doesn't get to come along. Right. It can look at it later. But in that moment of being in contact with that terrain and being guided, map falls away. Yeah. Which is a real tough practice if you like a damn map. Certainly can be. Mm-hmm. I mean, some days yes, some days no, right? It's uh it's also a very liberating. Absolutely. I would agree it's liberating. Which there are plenty of days where that feels awesome. And there are plenty of days where it feels daunting. And yes. like a little bit, I'll be totally frank, it can certainly feel terrifying, especially mm. when someone's really suffering and they really need help. Mm-hmm. And I don't I don't know what to do. And I don't know if it's gonna work because I don't because I can't lean into this other thing because I don't find in those really complex situations, for me at least, and maybe it's because I'm not as studied and um, developed in this way as some of our colleagues, but I don't find that leaning into my map helps me be of service to those folks in the situations that are most complex and consequently the most daunting when when I most want to be able to help this person not suffer, right? It would be really nice to just be like, I know how to do the thing and I'm going to do the thing. And that person's going to feel better. And I mean, maybe even that will work from time to time, but I don't, it's not, that's not my particular path in this medicine. I hear you, brother. I, here's how I know when I really lost the scent of the trail. Here's how I know that I have to start from zero. In my mind, when I think, oh, according to the theory, blah, 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 I know I'm fucked. That's it. I've lost the scent of the trail. I don't know the terrain at all. I'm looking for a map that fits this person in front of me. I don't have one, right? There's this moment of recognition and on a good day surrender to kind of starting again Mm -hmm. with like basics. You know, for me, the basic is, okay, am I looking at excess or deficiency? Mm-hmm. Is it hot or is it cold? Or I'll just put my hands on them. It's like, well, okay. Oh, look at that. They're really tense. All their tissue is tense. Right. Or, oh man, they're just full of water. They're yeah. soggy as a swamp. And I have to go back to those very, very like fundamental things you learned in the first week of acupuncture school, mm-hmm. right? Which is helpful. All right. So we, I, I can always go back to that. I can like reboot as it were. The thing that I would like to know from you, because you have a lot of experience and both being in that terrain, getting lost in the terrain and coming back, you know, finding your way back to the terrain. We're talking about cultivation. We're talking about practice. What are some of the things that you have found helpful in being able to gently put that map to the side and let yourself be drawn in, so to speak. I think that it was William Sutherland who said this, who, uh, you know, really well-known osteopath. Um, If you are interested in osteopathy, that name, I'm sure will ring a bell. Uh, Yes. Ding, 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 ding. Somebody asked him how he could do the things that he could do, right, as a physician. And he said, it's really easy. You just practice eight hours every day. 
<laughs> now, I am not making that claim, but what I why I'm bringing this up is because I think on one level, the answer to that question is the way to, in this case, cultivate capacity for letting go of maps and coming into the direct experience of what's arising in a moment is to practice that, mm -hmm. right? Like just practice it at every opportunity, um, both in terms of, and then this goes back to the cultivation piece we were talking about, like I, I do feel like it's fundamental and incredibly important, especially if you want to work with any of the palpatory orientations. And if you're taking pulses, you're working with palpation, right? So like um, to have some kind of practice where you iteratively deepen your understanding of like what's me, what's not me, right? Like, and what what is the, like the, the um, distillation, the clarification of cognition and perception right so that we can get clear like what is a thought and what is something that is a more direct perceptual experience mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. not in an analytical way again but so that like certainly i mean you know i'm in clinic and like i whatever i have to start having some daydream or like you know a thought arises Sometimes that's useful because the thought might actually be in resonance to something that if I dig a little deeper, helps me understand, again, not in a, in a primarily cognitive way, but, but come into some kind of relational understanding of what's arising in the experience with the person who's there for care. But also often it's just like, oh, look, there's that. Here's how I know within my own being to reorient, to come in to presence with this person. So the combination of practicing it again and again in the clinical space, but also having something, you know, some contemplative orientation to work on that by myself, I would say on a daily basis, really from, from my perspective is, is key. I don't think that's a unique position. I mean, it's certainly people that are have been at this game a lot longer than me and a lot longer than any of us have been alive would say something similar. Um, but that, yeah, that's, that's like the, the absolute foundation of my work and practice. In recent years, the Sa'am acupuncture style has generated significant interest and a loyal and growing following. In the Sa'am approach, a precise diagnosis leads to a four-needle treatment to address the five element and six chi imbalances in the body. The four needles target the controlling and generating cycles. It's common using this method for the needle sensation to be stronger than in many other styles. Thus, the choice of needle becomes important. The Unico brand of needles lends itself to both strong and gentle techniques. These superior needles are made of uncoated Japanese surgical stainless steel and feature the best guide tube on the market with its unique beveled edge. Additionally, Unico needles have a tensile property that helps with freehanding needles into Jingwell points and allows you to more easily feel the arrival of Qi. Blue Poppy is the exclusive importer and distributor of Unico needles. Use the code QI. 2024 to save 10% off Unico needles at www.bluepoppy.com. You'll be glad you did. 
there's a part of me that would so love it if it was just like the flow charts that we see in our textbooks. Right. It, it, it's very enticing. Oh, this is this is this. It could be these three things. You do this, and you know, it'd be great. I remember my teachers in Chinese medicine school saying these flow charts, these boxes are to help guide you in your thinking. Don't you ever put your patients in a box. Right. They were very, they were very adamant about that. Um, at the same time, they would ask us very clearly for a diagnosis. And it's back to the map and territory thing. If all of my maps are about boxes, like I'm going to put things in boxes. We are going to put things in boxes. I think there's a fundamental difference between putting things or people in boxes and then believing that's what it is and looking at, how do I say this? It's like the difference between a snapshot and a movie. Sure. It's like at this moment, it looks like this. I actually don't even use the word diagnosis in my head anymore. I use the word hypothesis. Hmm think it might be this now i want to test it out yeah right maybe it's this and i want enough certainty in that moment that i can create a coherent treatment that will test that hypothesis mm -hmm. so again i i think i'm always looking to get into closer contact with that terrain. It's like, what can I do to be connected to that terrain? And sometimes it is through some mental models and hypotheses and, mm -hmm. you know, in treatment, those are all ways to connect with the terrain, you know, and then you have to pay attention and see what comes out of it. In some ways it's easier when we're wrong because we know we're wrong. If we're really wrong, we know we're wrong. If we're a little bit wrong, sometimes it's not so easy to tell, right? Like something changes some, I'm thinking about the cases where I'm really wrong. Yeah. You know, it's obvious. Yeah. Um, sometimes when I, when it's kind of going right, I get a little bit lazy instead of like digging into it a little bit more. Yeah. I mean, I think another one that is tricky is like when you're right at a certain level and then it stops being right. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Right. Where like it appears, it feels, it moves in a direction and like, oh, wow, cool. Things are shifting, you know, in a way that is an, it seems to be an expression of thriving. And then like it just stops or flips right into either the thing that you thought was resolving becomes ascendant again or some new disharmonic dynamic arises. And you're like, oh, okay. Right. Ida Rolf used to, there's these stories about her. She would yell at her students, you know, go deeper, go deeper, which I think for a long time, and some people would say the reason that Rolfing used to get a bad rap for being so uncomfortable is that people interpreted that to mean use more pressure, like just hit them harder. But I think actually what she meant was like go deeper in terms of like feel, see, perceive deeper into the system to find, you know, what we would often refer to as the root in Chinese medicine. And so it's like, sometimes it seems like maybe we've gotten to something that appears to be the root. And then we find out like, no, we've somehow been like dancing around the surface, even though it appeared and felt like we were engaging the system at a level of depth and seeing the kinds of changes that the person, you know, is coming seeking. 
I don't know if that particular riff makes a lot of sense, but it, well, it, it does make a lot of sense because we are looking for the root. We're often working on the branch. Branch is what is what brings people in. We're, we're often looking for the root. That root is sometimes um, quite difficult to suss out. And you bring up an experience, I think we've all had it, where things are they're moving along and it looks like there's progress. And then kerpow, it, it falls apart or it flips into something else or something... Or, the condition worsens, sometimes in expected ways. All right, we can often work with that, but sometimes in very unexpected ways. Yeah, it's like, oh man, we're back to square one again. What are your thoughts about that? I, I, I just this morning I was thinking about a patient of mine who I've been seeing for maybe two and a half years, maybe even three, from time to time, asthma, you know, long term kind of thing. And uh, I recently got an email. There's some issues going on with some other stuff. I'm going to get into it here. Mm-hmm. But I was just thinking to myself this morning, you know, I think I need to sit down with this woman and do another intake, as it were. It's like, I think, it's like I thought I understood what was going on with her. And at the moment, I'm not sure who she is. Uh, I mean, I, I love that. Not that you're not sure, but that your response to that is like, okay, well, let's see what we can do to understand and discover, right? Let's listen to this story again, maybe from the beginning. Maybe the story is entirely different. Exactly. I mean, even if it's the same events, maybe the story is entirely different, right? And certainly, you know, as we are growing and changing and discovering as people and practitioners, our maps are changing. Our relationship to the terrain and the territory is changing. This person is changing. So like, I I think especially for those folks that we work with for extended periods of time, it's probably of great benefit to from time to time have a like, okay, let's revisit Mm -hmm. this. Because in the back of my mind at this moment in time, what I'm saying to myself is, who the hell are you? Yeah. I thought I knew you. Yeah. This is like a long-term relationship. Who are you? I thought I knew you. Yeah. Right? <laughs> I mean, I think it's exactly like that. I, I don't mean this in any kind of like murky ethical territory, but I would say that medicine across the board, but certainly this medicine, it's fundamentally relational. doesn't mean I need to like be hanging out with my patients. That's not the kind of relationship that I'm talking about, but it is in the relational field right? That the medicine is actually happening. It doesn't, it's why treating yourself kind of, it can have some efficacy, but it's not like, you know, as a practitioner, if you're in trouble, you don't, I mean, we all have probably, but it doesn't merit, uh, or it's not particularly useful to treat yourself if you really need help. Yeah. We have too many blind spots to ourselves. Well, and it, while I would hope that I have some kind of relationship with myself, it's the same one that is giving rise to whatever needs the support. And so part of that relationality, right? We were talking about being a catalyst at the beginning mm-hmm. of the conversation is that the relationality itself is catalyzing and creates the possibility space for some kind of shifting that if it could be worked out without that, it probably would have been worked out without that. Yes. That makes sense.
So how long have you been at this Chinese medicine thing? I graduated from Zhengdao in 2012 and started practicing in 2013. So yeah, I was a body worker prior to that for a number of years, but had kind of been on a, a long-term hiatus from practicing professionally as a body worker, and um, but had a background in body work and movement. Well, that sort of explains your interest in putting your hands on people and letting the system tell you something. Totally. Yeah. So for there's a lot of students, it turns out, who listen to Geological, mm. which was news to me a, a little while back. It's like, really? Students? It's like, aren't they busy with learning medicine? And evidently, geological helps in some ways. For people that are students, they're in the process of learning. Any advice on some practices that they can begin with or some cultivation that they can do or some perspectives that they might want to explore at this very beginning portion of their journey that that might be helpful for them 10, 20 years down the road? I mean, I would say if there's one thing that I would encourage anybody studying and practicing this medicine to do, um, it would be to start a standing meditation practice. Standing meditation practice? Standing meditation practice. Not sitting. I mean, I have no beef with sitting practice. But I would say standing, if you had to pick one, right? Because I could make lots and lots of recommendations, but that just becomes overwhelming and unrealistic. So if I could just pick one thing. So tell us about standing meditation practice. So you can make it as simple as you wish, or there's certainly plenty of layers of complexity that can be added to it. You know, it's um, historically, it is what people often refer to as being proto-Taoist. It like predates any kind of formalized Taoist practice. Proto-Taoist, I like that. You know, so what we're talking about really is, ideally this would be done outside, right? Mm -hmm. We are making a connection or leaning into the ambient connection between the heaven and the earth through, uh, through gravity. Through gravity, but also through the life form and the organism. And then in that space, we're breathing and just sensing and feeling what's going on both inside the physical body and in the environment around us. Like that's the sort of simplest thing um, or the simplest frame for it. And there's definitely different ways that we can orient and relate to structure inside of that that are going to facilitate good biomechanical dynamics for being able to if you're if you need to move things in the world whether it's objects or bodies or just move through the world that are going to help refine one's capacity to do that if you do body work there's a lot of ways that you can learn it you know again i was mentioning being a student of tom bizio's and i you know and back when he and frank butler and jen resnick all used to teach together i studied with them as a group um, but the kind of Twena that I've learned from those folks is essentially predicated on development through Nagong practice, right? So you're developing internal dynamics and, and developing structural integrity in such a way that those changes that you learn from the inside out in your own body, you then can use as uh, ways to facilitate change in other people's bodies. 
So whether or not you're interested in Twena, right, still there is this way that the more integrity I have in my structure, right, the more energy I can transmit through, both in terms of what I can issue and what I can receive. Yes, I'm thinking about earlier in our conversation, you putting your hands on people, being guided through the terrain of the patient. If your structure is solid and connected, it'll be easier to be guided. Totally. Mm -hmm. And that thing we were talking about, about being clear, like what's coming from me and what's coming from the person that I'm working with, that distinction too, one of the, I mean, there's like so many benefits, some of which are probably pretty obvious that might be fruits of standing practice, but some are, I think, less so. Um, you know, one's capacity to concentrate, to be present, to um, be clear again on like, where is the boundary space? On some level, we, we have to blur that line in clinical practice, but we don't want to get lost, right? Or confused mm -hmm. uh, or stay confused, like even okay to be confused, but we want to develop skills and practices or practices and skills that help us continue to be clear and clarify. Oh, okay. No, really that, that thing that I'm feeling, that's my shoulder pain, right? My right shoulder hurts. And I think, wow, everybody that I work on today has something going on with their right shoulder. But no, actually, that's just me. My right shoulder hurts. Why is it that everybody's left leg seems to not move so well today? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, we have so many wonderful books on medicine uh, that help us to explore into what we've been talking about today. I'm wondering if there's any materials that you've been reading lately or materials that you would recommend not necessarily, in fact, not Chinese medicine that speaks to this theme of mutable and fluxy that you think people might find helpful? Yeah, that is a good question that people might find helpful. So I read a lot. And the tricky part about answering this question is like finding a distilled place that speaks to that. I mean, if you're interested in philosophy, I think that reading in the process philosophy space, right, maybe not actually jumping into reading process and reality or something like that, but like checking out folks that are writing either about Whitehead's work or that are themselves working in a process philosophy context can be super interesting. Matt Siegel's got a great book that's kind of a whitehead primer. Um, but again, this is like more on the kind of philosophical end of the spectrum. I don't even know what process philosophy is. I mean, it's it's the very short version. Mm, short version. Is that instead of thinking of a materialist universe where like it's a bunch of objects, it's all relationships and processes. So it's got a lot of consonants with the Tao Te Ching mm -hmm. um, and other sort of classical Chinese philosophical orientations. Um, like Gregory Bateson would fit in that. Uh, some degree. Yeah. yeah. I don't know that he thought of himself as a process philosopher, but there's certainly a lot of overlap. 
Because he didn't really think about things. He always all seems to me always looking at processes. Yes, definitely uh, a relational orientation for sure. Mm -hmm. I mean, general semantics is another sort of like philosophical space where that those those kinds of ideas are explored a lot. Um, Krasinski's work. I mean, I would definitely encourage people if they're interested in thinking about these kinds of things to check out the Apricot Jam, which is Lucas Wolf and I's podcast where we geek out about this kind of stuff. Um, I don't know at the moment, and what I'll do is I'll think about this. I don't actually know that I have a book that I can that I can think of. I could certainly think of lots of conversations where these kinds of things are talked about. But I think the um, the challenge for me with thinking of a book is that I feel like it's it's more that a lot of things kind of talk around this, mm-hmm. right? And so my experience of that is is more like, I can think of a bunch of books that point at an aspect, but I can't think of a book where I could be like, oh, just go read this. Yeah. You know, you just, you just said that you can think of a lot of conversations that speak to this. And I think it's no accident that the Huang Di Neijing is a conversation. Totally. So much can happen in that, it's what we've been talking about this past hour, that relational space. It's one thing, I mean, I love books too, and I love to read. It's a miracle that we can get inside another human being's mind. Totally. Through written language. Yeah. Holy smokes. What a gift, right? And there's something about the conversational aspect that... I'm going to say it brings out or has the potential to bring out what's between the words or what links the ideas without necessarily explicitly calling it out. Totally. Mm. Do you know uh, this this notion of yarning? No, but I like the word yarning. You mean like telling a tale, like sitting back and Well, except that it's participatory. So this is in um, Aboriginal culture. I don't know if folks know Tyson Yonkaporta or his work. I mean, I'll totally recommend his book, Sand Talk. It's not directly, I mean, I guess you could probably say it is directly related to some of the things we're talking about, but maybe maybe not in a like, if you read it, it will recapitulate this conversation or these dynamics, but certainly in terms of relational thinking in a context, like an ecological context that is fundamentally rooted in things being processual, like, yes, it's it's about all of that. And yarning in his cultural framework is this kind of participatory, it's not a dyad, usually it's a group, having a conversation Mm. that is also telling a story, that is also kind of like a process of coming to consensus, but but not formalized, right? So the yarn is this opportunity to discover through participatory inquiry and storytelling something new and emergent um, that couldn't be discovered in a different context. I think podcasts would lend themselves to this. They do. In fact, you could make a case that podcasts are uh, an emergent yarning form. Mm. That might explain to some degree their popularity and why they can be so compelling. You know, and so back to your thing about like how awesome it is 
that we can read books and get into someone else's thought process. It is, and right, it it's fixed in a way that is cool, but is also back to the map terrain theme, right? Abstracted and and bound, right? Whereas, you know, the opportunity to engage with the ideas and feelings that gave rise to whatever that book is, say with the person who wrote it or with the people that are thinking it, it's it's a different kind of dance. Whole different dance. Well, and it's occurring to me as we're talking about yarning. This is what clinical practice is. Yeah. Yeah. Oh man, okay. Well, I think that's probably a good place to wind it down for today. We'll Great. just leave it at that. I uh, so appreciate your time. It's always fun to hang out with you and, and yarn a bit. And thanks for joining us here today. Yeah, man. Thanks so much for having me. It's been a total pleasure. I find it a tasty contradiction that our patients seek us out because they're hoping we have an answer to their problem. But for us as practitioners, we always start with questions and inquiries. We might be able to help our patients, and sometimes we have a solid solution for their troubles right off the bat. But more often, that loose, attentive sense of questioning and allowing our sense of the patient to ripen into a course of action to take in terms of a treatment, that's what's most helpful. It's easy to grasp for answers, but it's that empty, inquiring space of questioning that helps us to better unfold the dynamics of what holds our patients' problems in place. I come away from this conversation with the reminder to myself to keep seeking, even when I think I have the answer. Thanks as always for listening. If you liked this conversation, if you learned something new or found a moment of inspired insight, share the episode with your friends. If you want to support Geological, there's just one way to do that. It's by going to the website and becoming a member or leaving a one-time contribution today. Well, folks, that's it for today. Join us again next Tuesday for another conversation that connects up the voices of our community.